and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jacob Victor, Assistant Professor of Law at Albany Law School and Affiliated Fellow at the Yale Information Society Project. We will discuss his article, Utility Expanding Fair Use, which will be published in the Minnesota Law Review. So welcome to the show, Jacob. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation because uh, I saw your paper when it came out on SSRN, and I was already intending to read it when when you reached out to me because it looked really interesting, and I was not disappointed when I did read it. Really cool paper and a thoughtful uh, thoughtful kind of approach you discuss toward toward the end of it. But before we talk about that, I wonder if for listeners who might not be so well-versed in copyright doctrine, you could, you could talk a little bit about what you mean by a utility expanding fair use and how a utility expanding fair use might be different from other kinds of, of fair uses under copyright law. So I think the best place to start is just to provide a brief overview of what uh, the fair use doctrine actually is. So the doctrine is uh, an exception to the exclusive rights that a copyright owner otherwise has to exploit their work. And a defendant can basically raise it as, a, as an affirmative defense in an infringement lawsuit. And as long as they've satisfied certain doctrinal requirements, uh, especially that uh, related to the purpose and character of the use and the effect on the potential market, they can essentially use the work uh, for free uh, without permission of the copyright owner, even if the use would have otherwise um, been infringing. So uh, it, the, the fair use doctrine is, is codified in the Copyright Act, but it's historically it was a common law doctrine and it's sort of developed in a common law-like way with a lot of um, different additions being added by judges. And the most important addition of the last, I'd say, 20 years is this concept of transformative use, uh, which is basically uh, the idea that when a, when a, a, new, a, new, when a new user um, add something new with a further purpose or different character, which is a, a quote from a Supreme Court case on this, um, they can essentially, they can go ahead and use uh, uh, th that, that use is a, is a fair use. And um, what this usually means historically is that new sort of expressive works, new creative works um, that make use of existing creative content, uh, but but do so in a, in a new way, essentially kind of creating a new work. So a parody might be an example, um, a use of a copyrighted uh, uh, advertisement in the context of a work of uh, fine art. Those uses would, uh, uh, would qualify as fair use. So the reasoning here uh, gets into kind of why we have copyright law to begin with, which at least under U.S. law in the U.S. system, the theory is that, uh, you know, we want to be kind of incentivizing new creative works, right? So the concept of transformative use essentially steps in to prevent uh, the idea, you know, the, the, the very reason we give copyright to begin with, which is to provide authors um, the ability to kind of exploit their work for financial gain so that they would have an incentive to produce works. It, it steps in to prevent um, that policy rationale from being overly undermined by um, by those exclusive rights. So, you know, I can uh, I can write I can take a photograph, use it in use it in an advertisement, and get royalties off of using it in that advertisement. But I can't stop someone from then taking that photograph and using it in a uh, work of fine art collage. Where the theory is that um, 
that new work is essentially operating in a new market uh, outside of the scope of my kind of conventional market. So I can still make money off of licensing that photograph for uh, advertisements, but I can't make money off of uh, using it uh, off, off of that, that new use in a work of fine art. So in so doing, we're basically, uh, you know, I can, I'm still, I still have the incentive, I still had the original incentive to produce the work. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not essentially stifling the creativity of other people. So that's kind of the original concept of transformative use as it was introduced uh, by a 1991 Law Review article by Second Circuit Judge uh, Pierre Laval and then adopted by the Supreme Court in uh, Campbell v. Ake of Rose. So in recent years, the concept has been extended uh, into what the Second Circuit has taken to calling uh, utility-expanding fair uses. So these, this is a subset of transformative use, but I think it, it operates quite differently than the uh, conventional type of transformative use. And what, these, what this utility-expanding fair use concept essentially refers to is um, the use of, of uh, large numbers of entire copyrighted works in ways that don't necessarily add new creative expression to them um, or repurpose them in some new creative way, but instead uh, provide kind of an enhancement to a user's ability to access the works or uh, provide or um, access certain information about the works. And the Second Circuit has 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 recognized very recently this is kind of somewhat different than. Uh, the conventional idea of transformative use, but it's still uh, covered under the, uh, the the fair use doctrine under certain contexts. Well, maybe you could give like a specific example of or examples of utility expanding fair uses, um, either ones that courts have talked about or ones that are kind of out there in the wild, as it were, as a way of illustrating sort of what we mean when we talk about a utility expanding fair use. Sure. Um, so I think the best example is probably the the Google Books case uh, from a few years ago, which sort of took the took the concept as it had been introduced in um, a few other, primarily Ninth Circuit cases uh, uh, in the last two decades, and and, and kind of provided a, a pretty good sort of summation of the development. So what that case talked about was uh, you know the Google Books project, which scans uh, which scanned large, essentially almost every book in existence um, and provides a searchable database to users. So they don't, the, to be clear, the, the, the project does not provide direct access to, to the books, but it does provide a, a way to sort of search every book essentially in existence um, and, uh, you know, and, and find out maybe what page number uh, your search term falls under uh, or, and also to get a little snippet of, of the actual book. Um, so the court considered whether, this would this kind of concept would be this kind of technology would qualify as a transformative fair use, even though it wasn't you know the kind of classical example like a parody where where an author is taking new taking existing creative work and adding sort of their own new creative expression. Instead, it this technology was was adding something, but uh, sort of adding the usability and efficient access uh, of uh, of these existing copyrighted works. And what the court said is that. Like a uh, creative, expressive, transformative use, um, the uh, the technology here still satisfied the uh, the fair use uh, doctrines for uh, uh, four factors. Uh, basically, basically arguing that the 
the, the, the search tool function is sort of a new, a, a purpose and character that is separate from, you know, the use of a book in its, in a, in a normal way as, as a way as reading it, um, and, and going through it, the, the, the search tool function is essentially a new, uh, provides a new purpose and character to the use. And more importantly, does not actually affect uh, the copyright owner's financial market in a way that might make us worry about copyright's incentive function. And the theory there was that uh, in using a search tool to search through a book where you're not actually getting access to the to most of the book itself, you would still need to go out and buy the book if you really wanted to kind of get the full uh, creative expression uh, embodied in the book. You can only use the search tools to get information about uh, about the book. And the Second Circuit, I think, uh, the Second Circuit held that this was a uh, what they would now call utility expanding transformative use. The concept has evolved in sort of weird directions in the last few years. Um, and that's sort of the bulk of what I talk about in the paper. So there's now there, there's now been arguments made at the Second Circuit that any technology that not only kind of provides a new way of uh, enhancing uh, of of getting new information about a work, but uh, but any technology that essentially enhances a user's ability to efficiently access a work uh, should also qualify as a transformative fair use. And the Second Circuit has been kind of receptive to that argument and kind of and kind of skeptical. Um, and a case that really, I think, clarifies that tension is a recent case called Fox News v. TVIs, which involved a technology that essentially creates a searchable database of every news program uh, in, in text form. You can you know, search for your name to see if you were mentioned on the evening news or something like that. And then once you've you know, found a, a search responsive term, you could actually watch a clip of each of these um, a clip of the original news broadcast uh, up to about 10 minutes long. And uh, the, in, in the lawsuit that appeared at the Second Circuit, and, and most of these cases happen at the Second Circuit because Second Circuit is just sort of the big copyright circuit. Ninth Circuit does a lot too, but part of the reason I'm talking a lot about Second Circuit cases is, uh, is, is just sort of that, that's where things, things seem to happen. Um, but in this case, uh, the Second Circuit basically was, was considering whether this this uh, ability to watch a clip of 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 this of the of of these uh, certain news searches was transformative fair use under the Google Books precedent and other precedents, and held interestingly that that uh, the ability to sort of access uh, a, a piece of copyrighted material in a in a streamlined, efficient way as this clip function allowed a user to do should qualify as a transformative use. And actually, because of its sort of value in enhancing the usability of the underlying copyrighted material, but then did a sort of strange move where they said, well, the fair use is still not appropriate here because of the harm uh, of, the, of the use on the potential, uh, on the markets of the copyright owner. Basically saying that this type, allowing this type of use to go forward uncompensated would harm uh, broadcast news uh, copyright owners' ability to monetize uh, their content. So at the end of this case, the, the Second Circuit decided that even though this was a transformative utility expanding fair use, uh, it wasn't going to be allowed to go forward because of uh, the market harm issue. Well, I mean, it strikes me that when we think about something like both the Google Books case and the, the TVI eyes case that you just 
talked about. I mean, Google Books, the court said, well, this is a utility expanding fair use because it kind of takes the material and gives new functionality. But like, wouldn't it be even more utility expanding for consumers if they could read the whole book instead of just a snippet from it? And same with TVIs, right? I mean, as I understand it, the court said that the text descriptions were fine, but providing access to the underlying material was a bridge too far and and infringing. But clearly it did make the material more accessible and was utility expanding for users. I mean, in the case, in, 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 in sort of in relation to Google Books and to the TVI's database, were the copyright owners making that material available in that format to consumers themselves? And if not, should that matter for how we think about the nature of the problem from a policy context? So that's a, it's, it's a really interesting question. I think Fundamentally, all of these cases and the very concept of transformative use, I think, is about balancing the public's the public's interest in access uh, for various policy reasons against sort of this copyright owner um, incentive function, which I'll, I'll caveat as, as there's a lot of empirical work that pushes back on whether, you know, that that even really happens, whether authors need uh, financial incentives in order to create, but it, but it is sort of the, the uh, a fundamental uh, conceit of U.S. copyright law. So it's something I'm going to kind of take for granted right now. But um, what, what I think transformative use does in, uh, in all of these contexts is it basically says, well, has, um, are there policy reasons we would want to allow this use to go forward? And do we have to worry about uh, harm to the copy, copyright owners markets? And if there, if those two are in tension, how do we balance things out? And in the in the case of a kind of creative, uh, expressive, transformative use, that question is answered by the act of uh, of transformation. So you know, I I like I, I'll go back to my original example. I take a work of um, I take a, a, a an advertisement and I repurpose it in a work of fine art. The the fine art market is not really in tension with the uh, with the market for advertising, you know, the licensing of of advertisements. So the very act of, of creation has, uh, you know, we would want it to go forward because we want to incentivize new creative endeavors, and we don't really have to worry about um, harm to the copyright owners' markets because that market is, is not uh, necessarily affected by by the new use. That logic, I think, also holds for something like Google Books, which is only really making use of the, uh, which which by virtue of only providing a search function is expanding utility in a way that we should care about, but but is still not uh, jeopardizing that that basic market for uh, buying books and and and, uh, and the like. In in uh, TVIs, I think we saw sort of a more direct tension between those two goals, where you know you have a technology that that's utility expanding in its in its access enhancing. Uh, in, in its use in sort of expanding cons uh, consumer access to this content, but the court I think was worried about what this would do to the to you know the broadcasters or, or content owners markets for providing that content directly to consumers, um, uh, and 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 basically decided that this was too much. This took this was too much access to warrant what is essentially a free license through through the fair use doctrine. Whether it should, you also asked whether it should matter uh, uh, whether the copyright owner is providing access. I think it should. Uh, Fox, it was a little bit unclear in Fox News, the TVIs whether they were. They, they claimed that there was some, Fox Fox claimed that there were 
ways of accessing um, the content uh, through its own websites, but also I think essentially claim that um, this would be the type of this would be the type of technology that would be logical for them for Fox to sort of develop and license to because it's it's essentially a, a new dissemination market. It's a way for users to sort of get access to content when they when they're no longer you know watching TV at night, like they're they're going to go off and. Uh, and you know, use a search tool, and that's how they're going to access Fox's content. So uh, I think they did what they did. They did, you know, I have some issues with the court's reasoning there, but I think they did paint a case of of market harm that uh, that was more compelling than what the plaintiffs argued in Google Books, where they claimed, you know, that even just the existence of a search tool would uh, would harm their markets. Yeah, I mean, if I may, it, it sounds like a situation where we see these new technologies or these new formats that generate a lot of positive externalities or have the potential to do so. And in theory, sort of parties could sort of work it out through licensing, but transactions costs and so on have created a market failure or kind of inclined toward a market failure that prevents the kind of bargaining that would let that would let that happen. Sometimes fair use seems to be able to solve the problem, but it seems like in your paper, what, part of what you're saying is that fair use isn't necessarily always the best tool, at least as currently constructed, in part because it's kind of an all-or-nothing tool. Play that out a little bit. Why is that a problem for using fair use, or why might not? Why might fair use not always be best attuned to sort of fixing this particular policy problem? Sure. So I think I think it's right to think of it as a, as a market failure. I wouldn't say it's just about uh, uh, transaction costs. I think. You're right to say it's also about kind of positive externalities and these, these social the social value of of these uses and and why we might actually want um, some uses to, to occur for free uh, and so, uh, as long which which you know licensing market would would usually presumes uh, a price um, but why we might want something like Google Books to occur for free because of you know the, the maybe high positive externalities of that use coupled with the fact that um, copyright owners are not really being financially harmed in a way that would make us worried about uh, copyright incentive function. But I think in cases where uh, those two are, are more in tension, where there is some tension between the sort of social value of the use and the um, incentive function of copyright, there, a better mechanism would be to actually uh, set a price, which fair use doesn't do. Fair use just provides free access uh, to, to the user. So uh, in the paper, I argue that a better lens to apply here would be uh, compulsory licensing, which is a, a sort of different limitation that is employed in, in U.S. copyright law that basically uh, takes away the control of the copyright owner, uh, like fair use. The copyright owner can't say no uh, to the use, but uh, still provides the copyright owner with some financial uh, compensation. Uh, and... Um, in the paper, I basically say that uh, these types of utility expanding fair use, uh, uses have actually been addressed by uh, a regulatory regulatory compulsory licensing system in the past, um, and and essentially what we're seeing here is the kind of uh, the 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 rise of these similar types of policy concerns in new markets uh, in ways that have been uh, traditionally addressed, or at least historically uh, sometimes addressed through compulsory licensing in other markets. Well, so maybe you could talk about one of those compulsory licensing regimes so listeners would have a better sense. 
of sort of how it actually works in practice and why it solves uh, or at least partially solves some of the market failures or inefficiencies that might otherwise be expected to arise. Sure. So the example, my favorite example, so compulsory licensing is uh, notoriously complicated and um, it, it, there's this regulatory apparatus in Washington that administers the existing compulsory licenses uh, that, that I've written about in, in other work. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's pretty convoluted. So I'll give a, I'll give a pretty high level uh, explanation. But one, one example of these compulsory licenses is, was created in the late 90s for the use of sound recording copyrights, um, sort of music embodied, you know, recorded music copyrights, essentially, by uh, new, new digital radio technology. So think of uh, Pandora, um, satellite radio was also covered at the time. And essentially, if you look at the legislative history of that of that act, which is called the Digital Performance Rights uh, Act, what Congress seemed concerned about was some was similar to what we were seeing in these kind of utility expanding fair use cases. So basically, you had uh, a, a copyright owners had uh, you know were exploiting their their copyrights uh, in you know CD markets, MP3 markets, things like that, selling selling that music to the public, and all of a sudden this new technology came around. Uh, digital radio that was going to provide a new way of accessing uh, that that content, and um, Congress could have done a few different things. They could have basically said, "Well, like this is just going to be a conventional licensing market. If digital radio stations want to uh, use this content, they'll have to pay pay a license, negotiate and pay a license." And then, and Congress actually did do that for music streaming, like services like Spotify. Uh, but didn't didn't do that for digital radio. The second approach might have been to say, actually, we're not going to make digital radio stations pay royalties at all. We're going to exempt them from copyright protection, and that is that has actually been historically the story with uh, non digital radio, with with broadcast radio, which has not had to pay uh, licensing fees to copyright owners. The theory there being that broadcast radio is not does not really compete with Kind of conventional um, uh, uh, dissemination markets, but instead provide sort of a boost to those markets. You know, you you put your song on the radio, and then everyone goes out and buys the CD later on. Congress also wasn't really satisfied with that explanation when it came to digital radio. I think rightly realizing that this was a uh, this is a much more easier way to kind of access music directly in a way that may make make it that people would not, uh, you know, need to go out and buy CDs in the same volume as they might have otherwise. So the solution that Congress came to was, was imposing a compulsory licensing regime that basically allows any digital radio station to make use of music, uh, sound recording copyrights, as long as they pay a uh, government set fee uh, by the, co- yeah, the uh, to the copyright owner. And this fee is set uh, every, I think, I don't remember exactly every, however, however many years, but it's set through regulatory proceedings um, every few years. And something that I think is is interesting about this, the way these fees, at least historically, were set, was that they weren't about. They, they actually tried to account for the type of social value issues, the kind of positive externalities that that we were talking about before. the The rate setting regulators were actually tasked with trying to identify a rate that. Um, Sort of recognize the value of these new new technologies and expanding access to the public, while simultaneously trying to ensure 
that copyright owners were adequately compensated. And this, of course, is a highly subjective enterprise, but I think it sort of illustrates the same type of uh, policy balancing that we're, that we're seeing maybe not happening as well in the context of uh, fair use, which to me suggests that maybe the better lens to apply to this uh, uh, utility expanding fair use phenomenon would be something like a compulsory licensing. Yeah, so one thing that you, you remarked on in the paper that I thought was really interesting was that when these compulsory licensing regimes are created, you know, there is this kind of looming risk of kind of too much regulatory back and forth. But it seems like in a lot of cases, parties end up sort of resolving these these disputes about rates and so on on their, on their own. And so there isn't as much kind of regulatory activity as we might predict there to be. Is that a fair reading of your take on what has happened in the past? And if so, why do you think that happens? It's a it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I think it's a it's a somewhat varying on what's happened in the past. I don't think it happens that well in the current music compulsory licensing system, um, but but it can happen, and it's sort of a, a question of institutional design and, and regulatory design. But there there has been a lot of work that sort of shows about you know the difference between kind of a liability rule or a property rule. You know, a, a compulsory license essentially being no, the kind of classic liability rule in the in the Calabresi Malamed framework, where the government is uh, uh, is basically stepping in and 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 uh, forcing you know allowing a use to occur but requiring compensation. Um, and there's been some work done by several scholars about how sort of the shadow of liability rules can actually impact uh, licensing and bargaining. So uh, some people have looked at sort of other regulatory contexts and shown that you know when there's a when there's sort of a prospect of a court. Um, or regulatory agency stepping in to set a price um, that will actually galvanize licensors and licensees who may otherwise be recalcitrant for various reasons or be holding out for um, a higher price that's problematic uh, to reach a, a private bargain so so as to not have to resort to the use of that uh, regulatory price setting mechanism. Uh, and I think that would be an interesting you know, I think in in, the, in this case, if we were to kind of add on a compulsory license uh, option as a supplement to to fair use for for those cases where you know we have some kind of utility expanding transformative use, but uh, the market harm to the copyright owner is too great to allow for fair use, if we were to add on a compulsory license option as sort of the next step, it would be an interesting question as to whether. We, courts would actually have to do that type of complicated rate setting very often, or whether just the prospect of a court stepping in to set a price might uh, galvanize uh, licensing between you know companies like TBIs and um, and the copyright owners that that uh, may have resisted licensing to them. Well, so in the paper, you kind of suggest that there was a political backdrop against which previous com, uh, compulsory licensing regimes were created sort of what was or what has been the sort of paradigmatic relationship between various market players that has resulted in the creation of a compulsory licensing regime do you see similar kinds of kind of commercial or institutional relationships in relation to the kinds of circumstances that might be arising in future 
um, uh, utility expanding fair uses and sort of like, what do we really practically need for a compensatory licensing regime to actually be created? Sure. Um, this is, I mean, this kind of gets to the heart of, you know, how copyright law is, is created these days. And, you know, there's been a lot of work about how really this is kind of a political battle. Almost any new copyright law policy is a political battle between uh, copyright owners trying to essentially get as much money as possible and, you know, those that are trying to use that content, trying to pay as little money as possible. Um, I think that's probably a bit of an overstatement, but that that is kind of the, the fundamental battle uh, that gave rise to uh, a lot of the kind of existing compulsory licensing regimes. Um, and, you know, it's important to, I think, recognize that political reality, but uh, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that the mechanisms that were, that, that the law uh, that, that emerged uh, were necessarily not reflective of, of uh, copyright policy, because fundamentally, a lot of what copyright law policy is about is balancing between kind of the financial needs of, of those copyright owners and um, the use uh, of sort of new uses and, and, and new users. Um, so I do think, you know, in the in the case of uh, the utility expanding fair uses, we probably have a similar backdrop. So the question is like, why would, you know, why would Fox News, the, the plaintiff in Fox News VTBIs not want to license to TBIs? Maybe they wanted to bankrupt TBIs so, so Fox could step in and create sort of this new service. Maybe they were too worried that if, if users use this service, um, they would, uh, they would stop watching the evening news and, and they would lose advertising revenue. There's some evidence that, uh, Fox was was willing to license to TVIs, but only if uh, TVIs signed a, a fairly restrictive kind of content moderation agreement, uh, a, like a non-disparagement, essentially a non-disparagement agreement uh, of, to Fox's content. So basically what you have there is Fox trying to kind of extract whatever suits its business purposes. Uh, and in this case, deciding that licensing to TVIs does not suit its business purposes. TVIs went ahead and used the content anyway, hoping that it could get a fair use ruling. In that case, you have TVIs basically saying, well, if we could use this this, this content for free, that would be great for us too. Um, so I think an ideal legal solution would basically step in and say, okay, how are we going to uh, you know, split the baby here? And to me, fair use doesn't seem really able to do that. So, so the question then would be what, you know, as you said, what would be the kind of best way to go about doing this. And, and to me, I think the, we can work, we could potentially work within the existing copyright remedies regime to, to make this happen. So let's say you have a case like Fox News TVIs. you know, the, there's a close, but, but no fair use ruling. The court recognizes transformativeness, but finds that the market harm uh, precludes a fair use ruling. I think the next step then should be Okay, how can we craft a compulsory license rate uh, that embodies sort of the policy goals that were discussed about discussed in the in the initial fair use finding? And that's not how things usually work today. Usually, if you lose if you lose a fair use determination, you know you go on to the normal kind of infringement proceedings. And if you are found to have been an infringer, uh, you're usually uh, there's usually an injunction. There's usually uh, statutory damages, uh, things like that. What I'm essentially proposing is rather than that being the next step, we think about uh, imposing 
a remedy that essentially creates an ongoing royalty uh, obligation between the parties. Yeah. Well, so if, if I may, I mean, it seemed like the framework you're setting up makes a lot of sense to me where we have, you know, a new technology that's going to generate positive externalities, going gener- to generate profits of some kind or another. And there's parties on both sides. And really the question is how they're going to split up the profits. And maybe in many cases, it's hard for them to agree on how those profits are going to get split up. And if that inability to come to a meeting of the minds on the deal means that the technology isn't available to consumers, that that's a problem that we can maybe fix through this kind of liability rule related problem mm-hmm. you you discuss. I wonder how that works in a situation where there aren't necessarily profits to split up though. I mean, I, while I was reading your paper, I couldn't help but think of like, for example, the Internet Archive's recent National Emergency Library, right? Where was also, I mean, I think fairly mm-hmm. characterized as, you know, an effort to engage in a utility expanding fair use, but objected to by copyright owners on the ground that, well, you're just providing the whole work. How does that fit into the paradigm you're describing here? And, you know, how, when courts are presented with that kind of situation where there really isn't a revenue stream to split up, how should they think about it? Yeah, this is, it's, I think it's kind of the heart of the problem here. And to me, this suggests why fair use is still important as as part of the analysis here. That, that I, I'm not arguing that we should just replace fair use with uh, with kind of a liability rule with damages, which which some other folks have sort of suggested in other work. I, I'm basically saying that we need to supplement fair use with a uh, compulsory license, but fair use should still be the initial inquiry. And, and the reason there, I think, is that fair use is actually really good at weeding out um, kind of the 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 types of uh, Things that you describe. So another, you know, I think a good example would be um, the the uh, use of copyrighted works to create um, accessible accessible forms for the visually impaired, which uh, cases have held are is kind of a cla- is a classic form of fair use. And to me, that actually makes sense um, under uh, the kind of utility expanding paradigm as well, because what you actually have there is you have um, sort of groups coming in and, you know, turning existing works into accessible formats in a way that uh, the existing markets weren't really doing, right? They're, they're either because the markets were too small or because there just wasn't, um, there, you know, there were information problems that for, for copyright owners to understand that there was demand here. And um, what the courts have essentially held in those cases is that, uh, you know, there, there's no, there, there's, there's no revenue to share here, basically. Like the the, the there's a, there there was not a market that was being exploited because copyright owners owners presumably did not view this as a as a financially viable market. Someone came in and um and started you know doing this service for this for this population, and we're going to let them continue to do that uh, at no cost. So I so to me, the example you describe, I think, you know, assuming that that the court was considering kind of like the time limited emergency version that I think is now is sort of on the table. That to me would still be still qualify as a fair use and still, you know, warrant receiving kind of this zero price, what is essentially a zero price license. Um, uh, and, and would not need, it would not need to kind of go into this uh, compulsory license analysis of, of questioning, you know, of, of how to divide, how to, how to sort of divide up the revenue. 
Well, so Jacob, in closing, I really thought this paper was a clever way of trying to resolve a problem that we see cropping up in a con- copyright context over and over and over again. Every time new technologies, you know, increase accessibility or increase usability from a from a consumer perspective, you know, and sort of how do we ensure that that we you know have a system that doesn't prevent positive developments from being implemented and benefiting consumers, which ultimately is the goal of, or at least in theory, the goal of copyright policy. But I I guess I also couldn't help but wonder, reading the paper, should the very problem that you're describing and trying to solve encourage us to reflect on sort of the entitlement of copyright owners to claim these or claim a share or the lion's share of these positive externalities to which they're contributing content, but not necessarily uh, implementation. Like, is there any level on which you think that the sort of the need to solve this problem ought to make us reflect on sort of how we do and think about kind of the propertyness and the entitlement of copyright owners to make these claims in the first place? I think, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, you know, part of, and this is something I've, I've suggested in, in, in another article, but part of, I think the reason why we, you know, tolerate things like compulsory licensing in, in copyright more than we probably would in other forms of, of, of uh, other, uh, other property regimes is uh, the sort of policy drivenness of the initial entitlement to begin with. The idea that, you know, a copyright owner is getting, is getting, uh, a, you know, what, what courts often call a limited monopoly to exploit this work for a limited amount of time, uh, you know, for the very specific purpose of providing this kind of incentive to create culturally valuable works. And built into that entitlement is all of these exceptions that are designed to further uh, you know, balance that that goal against other policy goals, whether it's access, whether it's, you know, ensuring um, additional follow-on works, um, whether, you know, and there's all sorts of other policy reasons we'd want to weigh against that. Uh, and, and a lot of these kind of market market regulatory tools like compulsory licensing, I think, are, are drawn out from that sort of initial balancing act in, in the entitlement. And I think sort of the task of, of you know, digital copyright policy going forward is trying to kind of fine tune that and, and push back on this idea that that um, copyright is sort of an immutable property entitlement that you know deserves no no exceptions or limitations, which is a kind of the talking point of a lot of a lot of folks in the creative industries these days. Uh, and I think you know whether that's shortening the term or whether that's creating other types of uh, uh, other types of kind of market regulations. You know that that the the goal of this project is sort of opening up that discussion and allowing for a little bit more um, a little bit more inquiry into you know what are we actually talking about when we talk about weighing the balance between uh, incentives and access that that is at the heart of kind of the, the U.S. copyright system. Awesome. Well, Jacob, thanks. It was a really cool paper. I enjoyed reading it, and I look forward to your future work in the area. Thanks very much.
Morgan Day. Hey, Bob. Morgan Day. Hey, Bob. Morgan Day. Hey, Bob. Morgan Day. Hey, Bob. Everything's hey, Bob.